This morning, I'm eager to spend some time studying the scriptures with you, particularly uh, supporting the theme that Harry has adopted for his teaching uh, in this series this fall. And that basically is the idea or theme of the gospel impact of a holy life. Uh, You're going to hear a lot uh, by way of the opportunities, the responsibilities, the privilege that we have to be ambassadors for Christ in this world. But as we do that, we need to understand that as we go out, our testimony uh, for Christ is essential to our preaching of the gospel message. And so um, I want to support and compliment what he'll be speaking on and what he's introduced to us. Uh, some of the concepts that I'll be sharing are things I've touched on in the past, but uh, this is a newer presentation of expanded looking at what I've entitled the Imago Dei and the Missio Dei. The Imago Dei and the Missio Dei, these are Latin uh, terms uh, for the image of God and the mission of God. And so we're going to look this morning at what Scripture has to say about being an image bearer and its relationship to being participants with God in his plan of redemption, uh, to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. I don't always do this, but I did put a PowerPoint presentation together so we could cover a lot more ground. But I want to say to you, if you'd like a copy of my notes, uh, I'm going to give you my email address right now, okay? So you can sit back, you can track with the main themes and points, you're welcome to take notes. Uh, But if you like uh, my full notes with the quotes and everything else, I'm glad to share that with you. So you don't have to be anxious this morning uh, in trying to get everything written down because we're going to a lot of ground. So my email address is m for Mark, m Tatlock, my last name. T-A-T-L-O-C-K at T-M-A-I T-M-A-I dot org. So just shoot me an email this week. I'm happy to share these notes with you. Feel free to use them. Pass them on to others if you find it beneficial. But in the study of the Imago Dei and the Missio Dei, I want to look at the flow of Scripture as it relates to God's sanctifying work in our lives and the necessary benefit it is to uh, being an effective witness. So we're going to look at implications, really, of imitating Christ and the pursuit of holiness. And I hope that this will be an encouragement to you. To get started, I want to read one text of Scripture, and then uh, we'll begin kind of looking at this survey of Scripture. Colossians chapter 3 is the text I want to draw our attention to. This wonderful book uh, written by Paul is really uh, a testimony to Christ. He begins by commending the Colossians and their faith and calling them to a true knowledge of Christ and living in that knowledge. And he goes into chapter 2 and just reminds us of the glory of Christ and who he is and what he deserves and then what he's done on our behalf. And then he turns his attention to us, says, if this is true that the glory and honor of Christ is primary and ultimate, then who should we be in light of what he's done through his work of, yes, salvation, but also sanctification? Let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Let me just stop there. He's referring to this beautiful picture of baptism where we have, what, died to ourselves? been buried with Christ, and raised in newness of life. And so he says, if you've been raised up with Christ, 
okay, you're living a resurrected life, then keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Can I get an amen? This is our hope, right? Okay. The ultimate experience for the believer is going to be found in eternity future where we are resurrected with Christ and will abide with him as his bride for eternity in a perfect love relationship unhindered by the effects of sin in us and in our world. He says that this is who you are and you set your mind on Christ as ultimate and you seek the things that are consistent with who Christ is in living a resurrected life, then do this. Verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. Put aside anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from your mouth. What's he saying here? This is how unbelievers live. Okay? This is what characterizes them. So if you've been raised in newness of life and you've got your eyes set on Christ and you're pursuing him, these should not be part of our conduct or our character or expressed in our relationships with each other. He goes on and says, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And here it is. And have put on what? The new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to what? Some set of religious standards, some kind of legalistic expectations of what uh, a religious or a holy life are. He says, no, what God's doing in our lives is he's renewing us to a true knowledge, an accurate, correct, faithful knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And it's a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. And what he's saying here is, listen, as someone who's come to faith in Christ, who's a follower of Christ, who has made Christ the Lord of their lives, your primary identity now is in fellowship with Christ. It's not your ethnic identity. It's not your past religious identity. It's not even your past testimony of being an offender Uh, and a rebellious one against God. It's not about culture. It's not about language. Your primary identity is that as a child of God. And he's saying, as a child of God, you want to look like and reflect your father. Okay? That's the image of the one who created Christ or sent Christ on our behalf and created us. So what does he say in verse 12? If you're going to reflect the image of the one who created you, he says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy, beloved, put on heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity." Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
And let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And here it is. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. What does he mean? Whatever you do in word and deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. He says you live your life as one who reflects and represents him. It's his name that we bear. This is our primary identity. This is a wonderful text of scripture that talks about the promise of God's sanctifying work in our life, of making us holy, making us like Christ, so that as we live with his name upon him, upon us, we can represent him in the way that we can conduct ourselves. I hope this is your hope. I hope this is your expectation. Not that you are going to try to do this in your own strength. Scripture warns us against that. That leads us into a path of legalism and focus on self and attempting to take merit uh, or claim merit that we can do these things in our own strength. We do this with the power of the Holy Spirit that resides within us and the testimony of God's word and the faithfulness of God's people encouraging us, holding us accountable, exhorting us where that's necessary. And he will complete us. He will perfect us. He will accomplish this great work. This is our hope. But sometimes as we think about this work of holiness or sanctification in our lives, we tend to think of it in terms of just its personal benefit to us. And what I want you to see in Scripture this morning is it's not just about you. It's not just about me. It's keyed to the greater work of the progress of the gospel that God wants to accomplish in and through us. And so therefore, there is a relationship between being an image bearer of God and participating in the mission of God. There's a wonderful book entitled Agape Leadership that was authored by Alexander Strauch. And it's about the story, uh, the testimony of a pastor in the U.K., from the 1800s. And this statement really sums up his testimony, the testimony of his life. Listen to what Robert Chapman said about himself. He said, there are many who preach. Both these men called to preach the gospel message. You better believe it. This was their entire vocation and calling. This is what God has assigned them to do. But both are giving testimony that it's not enough just to preach Christ. We have to also live or imitate Christ in our lives. How do we do that? Well, this is a difficult day and age for us in understanding holiness and how to live it out. J.I. Packer, in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, made this observation, and it's certainly true today. Much of our contemporary church life seems superficial, seems self-indulgent, and even compromised. All too often, we are greeted with media reports about scandalous behavior of prominent Christians or about the hypocrisy of this group or that. Evangelicals today are disillusioned with what has long been put to them as holiness teaching. What they have heard now strikes them as sterile, superficial, stunting real growth, and even irrelevant to today's perplexities and conflicts about Christian living. What's Packer pointing to? He says there's a crisis in the evangelical church. There's people who claim to be believers, but the way that they live is far from imitating or reflecting the character of Christ. 
they even might think, well, you know, the principles of Scripture, the example of Christ, it's not relevant to today. I need to accommodate. I need to adapt. I need to find a way to really make the church attractive. I need to make the church something that's accessible and convenient. And our pastor over the years, of course, has pointed at this trend in the church to lower expectations for believers as far as what it means to live a holy life. People are confused. If not confused, they're just discouraged and disappointed by those who fall, especially those who are in leadership. And so they lose heart, and they think if they can't pursue holiness, then why should I be able to do that? And they just give up. Well, we can't lose heart. Again, we have the promises of God. We've got the Spirit of God. We've got the Word of God. We've got the people of God. And we know He's going to accomplish His will. If He's called us and He's chosen us, He's going to complete the work that He started in our life. And so I want to look at eight observations from Scripture that help us understand what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What happened as a result of the fall? And what is it that God is doing to aid us to grow in our ability to reflect him and then its impact on our testimony? First thing I want to look at is the image of God itself. The image of God. Man was created to glorify God. And in God's design of man, he embedded his image, his nature. You've heard this before. This is not new to you. The key text there is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. This is repeated again in Genesis chapter 9 and on other occasions. But it's also stated again in the New Testament, James chapter 3, verse 9, as far as this reference to be made in the image of God. James writes, with it, speaking of our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. What's James doing? He's like, something's not right. Something's inconsistent. There's hypocrisy in the way that you and my church are living, speaking to the church there in Jerusalem. He says, you want to bless the Lord and praise him and claim him and worship him in your speech. And then you turn around, you curse, you criticize, you tear down others in the body of Christ, there's a problem. There's a battle, if you will, if I could put it in those terms. And it's a battle for whether or not we are going to allow ourselves to be made holy, to be sanctified, so that our speech and our relationships uh, in the body of Christ are consistent with our claims of knowing God and being made in his image. Well, what happened? We are creating the image of God. Note there in Genesis chapter 1, there is a plural pronoun used. It says our image, our image, speaking there of the Trinity. This is a reference to the active work of the Father, Son, and Spirit in the work of creation. But it's a reference to the qualitative aspect of what occurs in the Trinity, the love relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Something happened in the creation of man that entrusted to us the ability to live in a right relationship with God, a right relationship with others. So that the way we live with others is reflected, is a reflection of how God himself conducts himself in relationship. Now, there are many aspects of being made in the image of God. 
It brings dignity of life, sanctity of life. That's something we talk a lot about, why all life should be protected and cared for, because man is created in the image of God. But sanctity of life is just one aspect of being an image maker. There are other aspects of being made in the image of God. He commands man to rule over the creation. It's called the cultural mandate there in the following verses in Genesis chapter 1. But the point there is the way that we rule, the way that we lead, the way that we work in this life is to be done consistent with the benevolent nature of God himself. So it's not as much the role assigned to us in the image of God. It's as we go about the role, how do we conduct ourselves in a way that's consistent with the character of God? And there are great studies done on the image of God language in Scripture and the different aspects of being made in the image of God. But I want to point to this reality of what's expressed in the context of relationship and whether it's consistent with God's character. Because man rebelled against God and sought his own good at the expense of worshiping God, he became a lover of self, a worshiper of self. And when somebody loves themselves, what do they cease to do? They cease to love their neighbor. They cease to love others in a preferential, sacrificial, and we can fill in all the adjectives, kind, patient, and so forth, manner. And so, I state here, the need for redemption became necessary. And redemption provides a means by which the heart could be transformed and a man could once again make choices to live in a fashion that displays the essence of God's nature. Okay. Could not do that before you were redeemed. Your understanding was darkened. You were a worshiper of self. And that means when you worship yourself, you're going to violate others. That's what we read in Colossians 3. That description, what does it say? You're sons of disobedience, right? You're going to be characterized by anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech, and you're going to lie to each other. Is that loving behavior? It's self-loving behavior because all that's motivated for personal gain or benefit. Why would you lash out at somebody else? Why would you lie to somebody else? What is it that is motivating that? It's self-interest. It's your pride. But when you die to self, right, you have the ability then to do what? As he says here, holy and beloved relationships. Do our relationships reflect how God conducts himself in relationship? Well, that's a high standard, isn't it? And one we fail to meet most often. And yet I hope you can see in your own life there's progress being made. Maybe you're a little more patient with your spouse or kids. Or maybe you just desire to be. Just the desire to be, because you know that's what God is honored by, is an expression of his transforming your life. Okay? So this is not a lecture on perfection. Okay? This is a reminder that God is at work in your life, wanting you to be like him in this aspect. We go on uh, and look at this statement. I apologize for the size of the font. Uh, But listen as I read, at least. This is from our pastor, John MacArthur, uh, in a sermon entitled Moments of Truth. He says this, What is the image of God? The Hebrew word for image, salem, comes from a root that speaks of carving. It is the same word used to speak of graven images. It almost seems to convey the idea that a man was carved into the shape of God. It suggests that God was, in essence, the pattern for the personhood of man. That is not true of anything else in the space-time universe. Clearly, because the image of God is unique to humanity, it must describe some aspect of human nature that is not shared by animals. 
It isn't talking about biology or physiology. It certainly isn't a reference to the way that we look as creatures made of flesh and bone. After all, God is spirit, and a spirit does not have flesh and bones. Above all, John says, the image of God can be summed up by the word personhood. We are persons. Our lives involve relationships. We are capable of fellowship. We are able to love other persons in a godlike sense. We understand communion. We have an amazing capacity for language. The image of God is personhood, and personhood can function only in the context of relationships. How can you reflect God's qualities today in your relationships? Anthony Hokema, who's written a book entitled Creating God's Image, helps us in this point. He says, The concept of man as the image or likeness of God tells us that man as he was created was to mirror, reflect, or to make, in, to make visible the invisible, and to represent God, if you will, to act as God, under God, and for God's creation. We must learn to know what the image of God is by looking at Jesus Christ. What must therefore be at the center of the image of God is not characteristics like the ability to reason or the ability to make decisions, but rather that which was central in the life of Christ, love for God and love for man. So both our pastor and here uh, this theologian point to the key aspect of being an image bearer, and that is the ability to reflect the character of God in the context of relationship. That's a capacity you do not give to your dog, no matter how much you love your dog or your cat, right? Or any other created being. This is unique to being a person, a human being. And God entrusted that to man. And he enjoyed that perfectly in the garden, Adam with Eve and Adam and Eve with God. Sweet fellowship, uninterrupted, unaffected by sin or if I can say, selfish interest. So that gives us an understanding of a key aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. So let's just restate or go on to look at what is the purpose then of sanctification. Well, it's to display God's nature in order that others would see God and come to glorify him. A little survey of scripture, if you go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 10, We read this, be holy for I am holy. Well, who is the author of Hebrews speaking to? To you and me as fellow saints, as believers, those who have benefited from the priestly work of Christ on our behalf. He says, as a result of this, be holy. We're instructed to be holy. But notice there's a purpose statement. It's not just be holy. It says be holy, why? For, for for I am holy. See the relationship? If we are the children of God, then we bear a responsibility to reflect God in the way that we conduct ourselves. Now, this statement in Hebrews is drawn from the Old Testament text. Uh, It's repeated many times, but first of all, in Leviticus chapter 11, where we read, for I am the Lord your God, speaking here to the nation of Israel, for I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore, And be holy, for I am holy. By the way, what does the word consecrate mean? It means setting apart. It's part of the the set of words uh, in the Hebrew language, and it's true in the Greek language as well. The set of words that we use to speak of consecration, being set apart for worship, being sanctified, being holy, okay? Being a saint. 
All right? All these common terms derive themselves from the same set of root words. Okay? So here he's saying, as you set yourself apart for worship, be holy. Why? For I am holy. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And see, what God's saying here is, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I adopted you unto myself. I rescued you from slavery. Okay, now you're going to be identified with me in a personal, intimate relationship. And I'm going to be your God. He's defining a particular relationship that he's going to enjoy with the Israelites. And he says, if we're going to enjoy this relationship, if we're going to fulfill this relationship, you need to be holy because I'm holy. Now later, in Exodus chapter 19, uh, and Harry alluded to this text when he was speaking, we read this mission statement given to Israel. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. Of all the nations of the earth, he chose the Israelites, the Hebrews. Okay? So again, there's this identification in relationship, particular relationship. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The reference here, and we have talked about this in the past, kingdom of priests, priests function in a mediatorial role, a reconciling role between sinners and a holy God. If you listen carefully, last Sunday, Pastor John preached this clearly. Uh, It was a wonderful sermon, but he was speaking to what was the role of Israel in the Old Testament to be a light to the Gentile nations, to fulfill their testimony before the Gentiles, kingdom of priests. But you can't fulfill that role of being a mediator or a reconciler of sinful people to a holy God unless what? You're holy. You commit yourself to living your life in such a fashion that you live with my character. And here we see those two ideas linked together. If you will, the missio day, the mission of God, living as a priest in this world, and the imago day, the image of God, of being holy. Now, R. Kent Hughes, in his book Set Apart, which is a great book, I'd recommend it to you, With regard to this text, he makes this observation. He says, God's plan for Israel was a global plan. They understood that the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant was to set apart Israel to live according to the standards of God, to put on display the very nature and character of the one true God before pagan and lost nations, so that they could also be blessed. This is from a chapter in Kent Hughes' book set apart that's speaking on this idea of living a consecrated and holy life. And so he makes the same observation that our pastor was making last week. So what is the purpose of sanctification? Is it just for our personal benefit that somehow we just live a holier life and God's pleased with us? Or is there a greater purpose? What's at stake is the reputation of God, the testimony of God. And if we are his people, then more than just preaching about God, we need to live in a way that's consistent with him and put him on display. So it links the image of God with the mission of God. Well, let's go on. What does it mean to be holy? One way to look at this is to look at the communicable attributes of God, his goodness, his justice, his love, his truthfulness, mercy, compassion, peace, his 
patience and long-suffering, his righteousness, his willingness to grant forgiveness, to abide in unity. These are all aspects of God's character that are revealed in the context of what? Relationships. How else would you see these things demonstrate? Someone can tell you that they love you, but how do you know they love you? They demonstrate selfless love towards you in service or whatever is the expression of that. Truthfulness, right? Truthfulness is reflected in our speech among ourselves. Are you a truth speaker? Okay. Some of us might have grown up assuming or thinking that these qualities are things that are just internal qualities. But the fact is, these are characteristics that are deployed or demonstrated in human relationship. And so every time that we act or speak or in our attitudes, in the context of relationship, we have a choice to either demonstrate godliness or demonstrate selfishness. We know this because Galatians 5 helps us understand this text. It says, Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The flesh sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. You know that, don't you? It's a battle, right? And for these are in opposition to one another. The deeds of the flesh are enmity, strife, jealousy. Here's another list, right? Outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. How's all that demonstrated? Just you alone in your room, in your mind? Well, it might start there, but where does it find expression? It's in your relationships, okay? That's what he's pointing to. But by way of contrast, if you're bearing fruit of godliness through the work of the Spirit of God and the Word of God in your life, what fruit will be born and demonstrated in your relationships? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You know the list, right? You probably have it hanging on your wall somewhere. These are familiar terms to us. These aren't just feelings or emotions, okay? These aren't just sayings, you know, that we cross-stitch and hang on the wall. This is the reality of what my wife's going to experience from me today when we go home. And am I going to behave in a way that's godly or not? Okay? He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also then walk by the Spirit. I mean, there's a pattern consistency, and let us not become boastful, challenging one another or envying one another. That's going back to the former way of living. And again, here's our text that we looked at when we started. He says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And whoever has a complaint against anyone, and here's the standard, Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Hmm. Just as. Just as who? The Lord. How would Christ act? How does God act towards us? That's the standard for us. Another place that we see this exact principle is in Matthew chapter 18. And it's that great story of the slave who's forgiven a great debt, right? And he turns around and he won't forgive his fellow slave a small debt. And what does Christ say in telling that story? Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? How? What's the standard? In the same way, just as I had mercy on you. Have you been shown mercy by God? That's the standard as to how you should show mercy 
to those that you're in relationship with. See it again here in Luke chapter 6. It says, but love your enemies and do good, and you will be sons of the Most High. See the identification there, sons of the Most High? For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. What's he saying here? It's not if you don't judge and don't condemn and pardon others, then God won't do that to you. What he's really saying is because God's done this for you, treat others in the same way. Grant them pardon. Be quick to bless, not condemn. To forgive and to pardon. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. This is God's mercy demonstrated to us. For by your standard measure, it will be measured to you in return. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't just demonstrate mercy towards us the way we demonstrate mercy towards others? That would be a frightening reality for us. (laughs) It's convicting. Let's go on. Speaking of these wonderful characteristics and attributes of God that he wants to accomplish in our own lives, John MacArthur in his book, The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness, makes this statement. Man is never more like God than when he forgives. Isn't that a great statement? Man is never more like God than when he forgives. What's John saying in this book? He's talking about the significance of forgiveness, and he's rehearsing the forgiveness of of God on our behalf, and then he's trying to help shepherd the church and how do we live this out and demonstrate it towards others. And so he picks this particular expression of God's character of granting forgiveness, and he says, when we do this, we're never more like who? Like your neighbor? Like your spouse? No, like God. This is an aspect of being an image bearer and reflecting God. The problem is fleshly behavior displays selfish, destructive behavior in a relational context. Amen? Is that true? We've all done it, and we've all been the recipients of it. And we live with fraction-broken relationships that require forgiveness, right? The fruit of the Spirit results in godly or godlike selfless behavior within a relational context. Isn't it beautiful when forgiveness is sought and granted and a relationship is restored and reconciled? When that occurs, that's a small picture of the greater truth of the gospel. What's also true is if we don't do that, we rob the world of those pictures of the greater truth of the gospel. So it's of great concern to God in how we conduct ourselves. Robert Chapman, again, who we cited earlier, said this, to forgive without up and kind, humble way is a high exercise of grace. It is imitation of Christ. You have that ability today in the strength of the Spirit to put Christ on display. I don't know today if you harbor resentment or hurt from somebody and you need to seriously consider how Christ has forgiven you and what it would require of you to grant forgiveness to somebody else. I promise you, nobody's offended you more than you've offended Christ. You're not going to outdo him in the forgiveness category. Okay? Well, let's go on. Let's talk about Christ himself. And you look at the testimony in the New Testament of Christ in the incarnation. Christ 
taking on the form of man and revealing the Father and his nature to a lost world. We read in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory what? As of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. And then this statement's made. It's amazing. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The term there is talking about a mystery revealed. Okay? You've not seen God. No man has seen God. But we see God in Christ, in human form. And this is a fascinating reality. We, okay, who are made human beings in the image of God, but because of sin, violate the demonstration of God's character. What happens here? God himself takes on the image of man and then reveals godliness in the way that he lived. Why is Christ the perfect example for us? Because he shows us what it's like to live a godly life. And so John can say in chapter 13, love one another, or Christ can say in John 13, love one another even as I have loved you. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. Wow, what's he saying there? The way you conduct yourself in relationship is either going to affirm or deny that you truly are a follower of me. And we're back to that idea of the Imago Dei and the Missio Dei. There's a connection. Okay? Chapman, who I want to cite again, says, God is love. His children please him only so far as they are like him and walk in love. And then we begin to understand the testimony of Christ, such as in Matthew chapter 20, where we read, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We could go on. We see in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? Consistent with the testimony of the gospel. What's the testimony of the gospel? It's a testimony of a God who forgives man a God who shows mercy and compassion and kindness and love. That's what we preach, don't we, when we tell people the gospel? You're an enemy, and you're loved. You're undeserving. But here's what God's going to offer you, a free gift that you don't deserve. And so he says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, you know this text, but I want you to see the flow. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. The same mind with who? Not just with each other, but he goes on to say with Christ. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So we talk about Christ and his testimony in Scripture. He is our example. He shows us what it means to live a godly, holy, sanctified life. Well, what about us? If you look at the concept then of discipleship and how this relates to being an image bearer, We understand that we are to imitate Christ's character as a reconciled image bearer, one who once again is being made able to do what he was created to do. And we read these texts, 
Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. 1 Corinthians 11.1, we read, Paul writes, Imitate me. But is he the standard? No, what does he say? Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And again, our text that we begin with, Colossians 3, and have put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Another expression of this is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all men, training us to renounce irreligion and worldly passions and to live sober, upright, and what? Godly, godlike lives in this world or consistent with the character of God. We're awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people of his own who are what? Zealous for good emotions, good deeds. It's deeds. It's not just thoughts or feelings of godliness. It's the practice of godliness. So what are we doing when we try to invest our lives in others? We don't say, follow my example. We say, follow my example only to the point that I follow the example of Christ. So we point people to Christ. But hopefully they see in our lives, as we disciple them, as we're mentoring them, as we're fellowshipping with them, that we are spurring them on. We are encouraging them to be one who imitates Christ. Let's go on. It's not just general church members who are involved in the work of making disciples but especially to those who are spiritual leaders. This is true pointed out in the church specifically, but it's true in the home. Leaders are to follow the example of Christ. 1 Peter 5, 1-3 says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elders, shepherd the flock of God among you, providing what? Proving to be examples to the flock. What kind of examples? Well, examples of Christ-likeness, of godliness. Okay. 2 Timothy 2 Paul writes, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. What's he saying here? Listen, as a spiritual leader, you need to conduct yourself like Christ did. Who, who ultimately was patient when he was wronged? Christ was. Okay? Who responded in gentleness to those who were opposed? To him, Christ did. Okay? And he says, in doing so, you put the focus on the truth and not on your personal conflict. Okay? And that is what allows them to contend with the truth that can result and lead to repentance. Okay? Sometimes we can be proud in our adopting an argumentative spirit about the truth. We can debate, and we can be antagonistic in that and argumentative. But what we do sometimes in that case is we provoke the unbeliever or the person who's in the flesh to respond in kind. And then it's not about the principle of the truth. It's about defending your position. But if you respond in gentleness, you take yourself out of it and say, that person may be angry, hostile, but say, look, I care about you. Okay? I just want you to know what God's word says. I want you to see who God is. Okay? Then you don't become the object of provoking them in their flesh. 
they have to contend with the truth. And those of us in spiritual leadership, and many of us are, both the church and the home, need to make sure that we conduct ourselves in this manner. We see this in Titus chapter 2, that the way we disciple others and, and our spiritual leaders, both older men and older women, has the effect that we live holy lives with this outcome, so that the word of God will not be dishonored, so that the opponent will be put to shame, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I love that phrase, adorn the doctrine. It means you're dressing yourself in a way. The way that you live adorns the gospel message and points to God and Christ. If not, the opposite is true, isn't it? And this comes down to our next point, our last point, the church's witness. The conduct of the body of Christ either reflects or distorts the testimony of Christ. We see the same author who authored John chapter 1, speaking of Christ, who took on flesh and revealed the Father to us. Here's what he writes later in life. 1 John chapter 1, the one who says he abides in him ought to walk, what? In the same manner as he walked. Or 1 John 3, we know that when he appears, we will be like him, completely, perfectly. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him does what? Purifies himself now. This is the end. We will be like him. It's amazing. And so we want to pursue Christ's likeness in our lives today. Just as Christ revealed the Father to a lost world as imitators of Christ, we are to re- reveal the Father to a lost world. And this is what we see in the next verse. In 1 John chapter 4, he who said no one had seen the Father at any time, but Christ has revealed him to us. He says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God, God abides in us and his love is perfected, demonstrated in us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The one who loves God should love his brother also, right? Speaking now of the church, John writes, he says, look, the church reveals the father to a lost world. If you live in a way in relationship that reflects his character, they see God in us. Harry referenced these verses, so I include them here. Talking about the church's witness and the image of God, we either reflect or distort the testimony of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Therefore, okay, Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace he brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We've talked about that already. And here Peter repeats the same principle. He goes on to say, though, in chapter 2, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's repeating that language from Exodus 19, spoken to Israel. Why? That we may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If this is true of you, you've been rescued from darkness, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that they, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. It goes on to say later, to live your life demonstrating the excellencies of God. It's not keep your behavior excellent in some general standard. It's referring to the character of God, the excellencies of God. And then in chapter 3, he goes on to sum it up 
All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Very consistent. Colossians 3, Galatians chapter 5. We look at this then, this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now watch this. Paul writes, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. It's just touching on a few statements there in 2 Corinthians. But you see the theme. How we live has everything to do with the effect of our witness. We either reflect or we distort the testimony of Christ. Just an observation from Jim Peterson's book, Entire Living Proof. He says this, the very existence of a group of Christians with unique relationships to one another is in itself a witness. We have seen that from the beginning, one of God's primary means of revealing himself to the world has been through people. Brothers and sisters, this is the great privilege that you and I have. First, to experience the sanctifying work of God, to be made holy like he is holy. But it's not just about your personal benefit, it's about whether or not the church of Christ is going to have effect and gospel impact. As we study this theme uh, under continued teaching of Harry and the other elders, let us understand what it is that God intends to accomplish in our lives. Not some false standard of perfection. This is about actually becoming what God created us to be, to live a life consistent with his character, demonstrated in relationships so that we might bring glory to him. Well, I need to pray and close, but I'm going to put up on the screen some books, some recommended reading. So I'll put that up there, and then I'll invite you to go ahead and bow your heads.